This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. I'm really honored tonight to introduce to you our distinguished speaker, John Mackey. John is the co-founder and co-CEO of Whole Foods Market. He's led the natural and organic grocer industry from a single store in Austin, Texas, founded in 1978, to what's now an $11 billion company, ranks in the Fortune 300, and has more than 340 stores worldwide and 70,000 team members. While devoting his career to helping shoppers satisfy their lifestyle needs and high-quality natural and organic foods. John is also focused on building a more conscious way of doing business. For 15 years, Fortune Magazine has included Whole Foods on its list of 100 best companies to work for. John has been the visionary for many successful programs at the core of Whole Foods Market. For example, he founded Whole Foods Planet Foundation to help poverty in developing nations. He launched the Local Producer Loan Program to help local farmers and food producers expand their businesses. He created the Global Animal Partnership to set standards for humane farm animal treatment. And he laid the foundation for the company's Health Starts Here initiative, which encourages health and wellness among customers and team members. He's been recognized for his work over the years by being named Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, Institutional Investor's Best CEO in America, Barron's World's Best CEO, Market Watch's CEO of the Year, Fortune's Business Person of the Year, and Esquire's Most Inspiring CEO. Wow. (laughs) A strong believer in free market principles, John co-founded the Conscious Capitalism Movement to challenge business leaders to rethink why their organizations exist, and to acknowledge their roles in an interdependent global marketplace. He recently co-authored Conscious Capitalism, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business, to boldly defend and reimagine capitalism while encouraging others to do business in a way that is grounded in ethical consciousness. Please join me in welcoming John Mackey. Uh, well, I am going to talk about my book, because I'm actually on a book tour. That's, that's why I'm here. So I'm going to talk about conscious capitalism, liberating the heroic spirit of business. I'll probably talk about 20, 25, 30 minutes maybe, and then, and then uh, the dean and I will have a conversation, and then I think it's going to be opening up for audience questions as well. So um, why do we write this book? 
I think we wrote the book for a bunch of reasons. I think probably the primary reason is, is that businesses, uh, capitalism and business have been the greatest value creators in the world. And I'm going to try to prove that to you in a minute. But the reputation of business is so terrible in our society today. And as a result, economic freedom is in decline. Business is being heavily regulated. And America's prosperity is also declining as a result of this. At the same time, I really believe there's a better way to do business. And the essence of the book is about how business can be conducted in a more conscious way. So in doing the research for the book, we learned so much. I mean, one of the great things about writing a book is, is you know some things that you want to communicate, but as you begin to, to write it, you learn so much more. And so your, your own worldview expands. It's hard to write a book, but it's deeply rewarding to do so. And some of the things we discovered, we talk about statistically in the first chapter of the book, is, is really the amazing things capitalism has done that most people are just not aware of. I mean, consider the fact that business's reputation right now in America has really never been lower. The Gallup poll shows that the reputation of big business has a 19% approval rating in the United States. That means 81% of Americans do not approve of big business. And Congress's approval rating is 17%. So <laughs> these are very close together. Uh, but in fact, business has been amazing. Capitalism really was invented. We had business for a long time, but capitalism was kind of invented really just a little over 200 years ago. We, we've got it. We had Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations back in 1776. He's oftentimes credited as kind of the father of... of uh, modern capitalism, and then you had the Industrial Revolution really get cranked up around the beginning of the 19th century, and so it's really when capitalism sort of really took root. And the transformation that's happened to humanity since capitalism was created is simply astounding. I mean, consider some of the statistics that we uncovered and we did our research. 200 years ago, 85% of the people alive, 85% lived on less than $1 a day, and that's in today's dollars. That figure now has dropped down to 16%. In the last 30 years alone, literally hundreds of millions of people have begun to escape poverty in just China and India as they've embraced more economic freedom in their economies. 200 years ago, uh, illiteracy rates on the planet Earth were over 90%. It was a sea of illiteracy, a sea of ignorance. Illiteracy rates today are about 14%. We will wipe out illiteracy on the planet Earth in the next 50 years, just like we'll probably wipe out poverty, at least abject poverty, if we continue to embrace the principles of economic freedom. What was the, how long did people live 200 years ago? What was the average lifespan? Oh, I'm hearing lots of guesses. Uh, I will tell you it's about the same age as it had been the previous 40,000 years. There had been virtually no progress in extending human longevity for 40,000 years. In fact, arguably, longevity was higher 40,000 years ago than it was in the year 1800. And that was because they ate a healthier diet. Uh, so it was 30. That was the average lifespan 200 years ago. What is it today? It's 68 across the planet, 78 in the United States, about 82 in Japan, which is the longest lived nation. 
Capitalism has lifted humanity literally out of the dirt. We were living in the dirt. We were poor. We were ignorant. And we didn't live very long. And so business, business has always been around, but we hadn't had it organized in a capitalistic system. And that is what's made all the difference. Is we embraced the principles of economic freedom, first in England. That's where it started. Then it went to the United States. And then it began to spread into continental Europe. And for a long time, the critics of it said, well, the reason the West became more prosperous was because they exploited the rest of the world. And, uh, but it won't be able to do that forever. And then we saw capitalism go to Asia. We saw it embraced by countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now it's gone into places like Thailand and Indonesia. And, and, and these countries have lifted themselves up at a rapid, rapid pace. I remember just visiting Thailand back in 1990. I couldn't believe how poor it was. I was back in 2007, and I just couldn't recognize the place. It was astounding how much progress they had made in those uh, 17 years since I'd visited it. Or, have I got my math wrong? About, yeah, 17 years. Um, then from there, it's now, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, it's been embraced in Eastern Europe, and we begin to see Eastern Europe lift its prosperity up. Places in South America have embraced it, and as a result, they've become more prosperous. Wherever economic freedom has been embraced, wherever capitalism has been accepted as the economic system, prosperity is what follows. And yet, despite the tremendous success capitalism has produced, it has a terrible reputation. The intellectuals hate it. Of course, the intellectuals have always hated business. Throughout all time, they've been the class enemies of business. Business has been routinely persecuted by the elites and the intellectuals. Um, Consider the fact how the minorities oftentimes did business because... The elites, it was, it was commerce was dirty, and so it was outsourced, you might say, to minorities like the Jews in the West and the Chinese in the East. And then they were routinely persecuted, driven out of countries, their wealth confiscated, uh, and they'd have to start over again someplace else. So why do the intellectuals hate capitalism so much? You know, it's, I can't say for sure. I do think... Admittedly, anecdotally, you can't really know for certain. But you know, I remember when I was in college, and uh, the, the smartest kids are the ones that became the professors, the ones that made the best grades in school. And a lot of the business people were the ones that were going to the fraternities, and uh, <laughs> they were making C's and B's and having a part. They, they seemed to get a lot of the pretty girls, but they, they didn't actually, uh, uh, they didn't seem that smart. Now, here they are. They, may, they end up being very successful and making a lot of money, and I, I just think that's somewhat resented. Doesn't it offends sort of people's sense of cosmic justice <laughs> that these people end up being wealthy when they were such screw-offs? <laughs> so the business people are not liked, and the reputation's not good, and generally the intellectuals, they go towards some type of... Uh, government-controlled system, socialism, or uh, I've learned not to use the, uh, the word fascism, so I won't say fascism. Um, I've even, I don't use that in Scrabble any longer even. So. But 
some type of government controlled system. And of course, uh, I find it's most interesting, the United States, for example, now, uh, we know for most of our history, we were so poor. If you study American history, we were a very poor nation 200 years ago, one of the poorest nations in the world. But we also embraced, more than any other country, the principles of economic freedom. And America lifted itself up. Uh, yes, of course, it wasn't a perfect nation. We exploited, we know, we exploited the Native Americans. We know that we they had slavery. Uh, I, I find it, the slavery question to be very interesting because it's actually a symbol of how far consciousness has evolved. When you consider the fact that still 150 years ago, we still had 14 of the 29 states had legalized slavery. It's astounding when you think about it. That's not that long ago. We still had segregation, Jim Crow laws, 50 years ago. So the United States embraced economic freedom with some notable exceptions, and it lifted itself up. Uh, and it would have ranked, if they'd, any, if they'd done these kind of rankings, it would have ranked number one in economic freedom for most of its history. As recently as just 12 years ago, 13, year ago, 13 years ago now, the year 2000, the United States still ranked number three in the Economic Freedom Index for, uh, that measures economic freedom across different nations, behind Hong Kong and Singapore, which rank one and two. In the last 12 years, the United States has plunged from number three to number 18. We now rank number 18. And if you really want to know why we have 7.9% unemployment and why disposable personal income has actually declined in our nation over the past 10 years, you don't need to look any further than that statistic. Because as our economic freedom declines, so does our prosperity. They are directly connected together. And if we want to reverse that, we will find ways to increase economic freedom, empower entrepreneurs who are the job creators, and we will allow the United States to do what it's always done, attract tens of millions of immigrants, who come over here in search of a better life, give them the freedom to, to enterprise, and we will, as a nation, benefit from that. So, capitalism has done these amazing things. It's helped lift humanity up. And so one of the reasons we wanted to write the book was we wanted people to understand that. And business is not love for lots of reasons. Um, the narrative has been captured by the critics and the enemies of capitalism. Intellectuals basically paint the motivations of business to be the following. Business people are selfish, and they're greedy, and they're exploitative. They're fundamentally not good. Young people don't aspire to be business people. If you go to graduate school in business, you've sold out. They should be out there starting some kind of nonprofit organization or working for the government or, or doing art, anything but business, which is, that, again, that disdain towards commerce that we've often experienced throughout, throughout the ages. I don't know. Anybody here see the documentary, The Corporation? A few people? I actually don't recommend it, but uh, <laughs> it is interesting in the sense that corporations are portrayed in that documentary is fundamentally sociopaths. They're just basically running amok in the world in the almighty pursuit of the bottom line. And that's the only thing that motivates them. And that is how people see business. And that's why it has a 19% approval rating. And that's why people don't like it and they don't trust it and they fear it. And they want government to control it. And that's what we're doing and that's what we've done. 
So we've written this book because we want to recapture the narrative. We want to wake business people up. We want to change the story about business. And it starts with business people understanding why they exist, what their purpose is, and how they can consciously create more value in this world. So, the first principle of conscious capitalism, which we articulate in the book, is that business has the potential, every business has the potential to have a higher purpose besides just making money. Not that there's anything wrong with making money. I mean, business can't exist if it doesn't make money. It will eventually fail. But just as my body produces red blood cells, if I stop producing red blood cells, I'm going to die. But the purpose of my life is not to produce red blood cells. I have a personally a more transcendent purpose that gives my life meaning. Business has to make money or it can't survive. It, can't, it doesn't have the resources to respond to competition. It can't, it can't grow. It can't, uh, it can't innovate. It can't even repair its equipment when it breaks down. So the profit's essential to business, but just as my body isn't, purpose isn't to produce red blood cells, business's purpose ultimately is not simply to make money. It has the potential for a much higher purpose. And that's where it has to start. And business has to recapture and rethink why it exists. Now, if you go ask people randomly what the purpose of business is, I promise you, do this experiment. Most people will look at you quizzically. What do you mean? What's the purpose of business? The purpose of business is to make money. It is such an odd answer. Because if you ask what the purpose of a doctor is, they make money. They're some of the highest paid people in our society. But I have yet to talk to a doctor and say, hey, doc, what's your purpose as a doctor? Yeah, I'm making money, dude. <laughs> no, doctors heal people, right? What do teachers do? Are they in it? For, is the people that are the professors at this uh, university, are they primarily doing it to make as much money as possible? Well, I don't know. Maybe a few, a few are. But I suspect they are dedicated to education. Teachers educate. They care about their students. They want the students to learn. They find that satisfying. What's the purpose of architects? They design buildings. Engineers construct things. Journalists, theoretically, should be uncovering the truth, <laughs> which I've told a few journalists on my book tour from time to time. Uh, every one of the professions ultimately has some type of purpose beyond simply its own self-interest. Lawyers are a tougher case. Uh, <laughs> mostly because the only jokes I seem to be able to remember are lawyer jokes. But, um, no, I mean, they teach in law school that lawyers, I mean, law, the question about purpose is an interesting one because not only does business have to wrestle with it, all the professions also have to wrestle with it now. And trust is being undermined in our society, not just in business. I could also talk about how politicians are not trusted, the media is not trusted, our educational systems in crisis, our healthcare systems in crisis. The only two areas in our society that still maintain a reasonably high level of trust in the American people, and they're declining, by the way. First is the military, but after a 10-year war in, in, uh, in Afghanistan, the, the military's uh, ratings are going down, and small business still holds a pretty good rating, but it's also in decline. Trust is being undermined systematically in our society. So definitely lawyers are not trusted. And, but they're taught in the law schools that they, take, they, they, they have a, 
codes of conduct that they have to adhere to, to be professional. And I think theoretically, attorney's job is to help pr promote justice in our society. We should live in a just and fair society, and the attorneys should be the ones that help us to realize that. And I think many people that go into law, uh, uh, many of them have that ideal when they begin their studies. So I think law does have that potential for higher purpose. So what is the higher purpose of business? Well, it can vary. Each business has the potential to discover its own higher purpose, and it can vary tremendously. Uh, and there's not a right higher purpose, but each business needs to discover it. And I will tell you that if, if, you're in, if you, some of you are business people, and if you're looking for your higher purpose, you can always start with ask what kind of value you're creating in the world. What are you doing for other people? Just as doctors are creating value for sick people and teachers are educating students, what is the value that your business is creating? If your business disappeared tomorrow, who would care? What difference are you making in the world? And those point towards what your higher purpose might be. Uh, we talk in the book about doing what we call purpose search, where you actually can go discover and work through your stakeholder group to discover what your higher purpose is. But business is the greatest value creator in the world. And this is where your purpose is anchored. Because business doesn't create value for just a few people. Business creates value for everyone that trades with it. And that trade, unless you're in some type of monopolistic system maintained by the government, is done through voluntary exchange. Think about it. Let's just take Whole Foods as an example. We create value for our customers. None of our customers have to trade with us. They do so because they believe it's in their best interest in terms of our, the quality of the products we sell and the service we provide and the store ambiance we create and the, and the prices that we can charge for the services that we're providing. That people come away thinking this is, this is a good deal and that's why they shop at Whole Foods. And if they don't, they've got Trader Joe's down the street or they've got Raley's or they've got some other type of supermarket competitor that they can go to. Um, we create value for our, for our team members. We provide jobs, we provide benefits, we provide opportunities for promotion, for growth, for learning. Um, as a result, our company has very low turnover for, uh, for a retailer, under 10% turnover on an annual basis. We create value for our suppliers. Our company has over 100,000 suppliers. It's been an explosion of local small producers in the last uh, decade, and we've added tens of thousands of new suppliers on. We create value for all those suppliers. They trade with us, and they create value for us. It's been a, a mutual win-win-win philosophy with our suppliers. We create value for our investors. They, none of them, nobody has to buy stock in Whole Foods. They do so hoping to see the stock price increase, and our stock price has increased remarkably well since we did our IPO 21 years ago. We create value for the communities that we're in. We talk about social responsibility. The way we think about it in a conscious business is, is that the community is one of the stakeholders in the company. And so it's at the very core of why the business exists. We exist partially to create value for the communities that we're in. So social responsibility is woven into the fabric of the business. And business should be done in a way that it preserves our envir environment. We now have the, see the environment as an important stakeholder in all of our decisions. So business is the value creator, value creator for customers, for for employees, for suppliers, for investors, and for the communities that we're, par we're part of. So it's not a trickle-down philosophy. A little bit trickles down. No, business is the value creator, and ultimately the nonprofit sector and the governmental sector are ultimately dependent upon the value creation that business 
creates. If, if the business sector declines, it's inevitable that the rest of society will decline as well because they stand on the backs of business. Business is the wealth creator. And as, as the economic freedom declines and the prosperity of business declines, count on it. The rest of the prosperity of society will decline as well. There are no exceptions to that. The historical record is clear. The second principle of conscious capitalism beyond finding your higher purpose is what we call stakeholder interdependence. All the stakeholders matter. The conscious business sees that they're interdependent on one another, that there's a larger business system, and that you should consciously create value for all of those stakeholders. And I, I use a simple example to explain it. The, um, our job, if, if, when we hire people at Whole Foods, we try to hire the very best people we can find. We make sure they're well-trained. And then the job of management at that point is to make sure those team members are happy in their jobs, that they flourish. Because we found when our team members are happy, they take care of the customers, and they make the customers happy. When customers are happy, they tend to be loyal to the business, they repeat customers, and they tell their friends about the business, they market it, and the business flourishes. And that results in happy investors. So, happy team members results in happy customers, results in happy investors. When you see that, that your suppliers are part of your network as well, and that they need to flourish because they create competitive advantage for you by their, by their unique products, you begin to see that business actually lines up as kind of this web of relationships, a web of, of interdependence. And the conscious business begins to see that web and then begins to manage the business in such a way that all of these interdependent stakeholders can simultaneously flourish. You look for strategies where, not, where you're not looking for trade-offs. You're looking for strategies that allow everyone to win at the same time, simultaneous uh, 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 prosperity. When I find trade-offs at Whole Foods, for example, in the strategy, I don't like that strategy. I want to get rid of it. I want to look for the strategies where no one ever loses. If the strategy is out there where the team members are losing something, I don't like it. We need to change it. We need to find a better strategy. Once you give your mind permission to go in this direction, you'll begin to discover things that you didn't realize were even possible before. Now, the third principle of the conscious capitalism is what we call conscious leadership. You cannot create a conscious business unless the leadership is also conscious. It's that simple because they will sabotage the business to the degree that they themselves are not conscious. I know this from personal experience because... I held Whole Foods back so many times in our evolution. It wasn't until I woke up that I could let the company move forward. And I've seen it happen again and again and again. As the, as the leader, as, as I became more awake and more conscious, it allowed the company to collectively become more awake and more conscious. So we need a different kind of leader today. Most of the leaders in the past were attracted to leadership because they were into power, they like to have power over other people. We see this with a lot of politicians, for example. And, uh, or people are attracted to it because they want the money. If you're on top, you get to dump more money into your pockets. So people have been attracted to leadership for power or money. In the 21st century, in the conscious businesses, we need a different kind of leader. We need leaders who are primarily have a higher degree of emotional intelligence, a higher degree of spiritual intelligence, and who are, who are primarily servant leaders who serve the higher purpose of the enterprise, 
who serve the stakeholders, who are attracted to leadership not from power, not from money, but simply to see the enterprise flourish and the people within the enterprise flourish along with it so they can reach their highest potential. Now, some of the most interesting statistics I uncovered, uh, we, Raj and I uncovered as we did the book, was the amazing transformation that's happening. Uh, first of all, let me just point out some of the ways our society is evolving from a historical context. I already gave you a couple of quotes. 150 years ago, slavery was still legal in 14 of the 29 states. 100 years ago, women didn't have the right to vote. 75 years ago, most of the planet was organized into colonial empires. 50 years ago, there was no environmental consciousness. 50 years ago, we still had Jim Crow laws of segregation in the South. 25 years ago, half the world was still basically ruled in communistic uh, uh, empires that people argued communism was a superior way to organize uh, people than democracy or capitalism. So we have seen tremendous progress in our consciousness in just the last 150 years. It's utterly astounding if you, can, if you, can, if you study it and you think about it. Um, I lost my train of thought. That's not good. Um, anyway, so we've made great progress uh, from an ethical standpoint. And, oh, women. Yes. How could I forget? <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I got in last night at like, like 1.30 in the morning from the East Coast. It was like 4.30, so I'm a little bit, a little bit uh, fried today. One of the most hopeful things that's happening is the fact that uh, uh, I, well, let me just cut to the chase. Women are taking over. This is simply the way it is, and we're going to see this continue to, to, to process out. And what's the evidence of that? Well, 60% of all college degrees now are being given to women. 70% of all the students in graduate school are women. Women are systematically taking over law, accounting, medicine, and education. Engineering and the military are still holdouts but I have no doubt in the next 50 years they'll probably take those over as well. Why is this good? Well, I, I, real, I realize it's very risky to ever kind of make gender stereotypes, and I understand everyone's on a continuum. But as a guy who's been an executive for doing this for 35 years and who's been married, happily married, for 21 years, I can tell you that on average women have a higher degree of emotional intelligence than men. That is just the way it is, and guys, you ought to get used to it. Women have a higher degree of emotional intelligence. They communicate better. They are more aware of the web of relationships. And women are much more comfortable with love in the workplace. And the biggest thing that's been missing in corporate America and businesses in general is love has been in the closet. Love has not permeated our organizations. And it hasn't been because we've had a more macho culture with a bunch of war metaphors of let's kill the competition, let's roll, let's crush them, they're dead meat, uh, kill or be killed, only the paranoid survive, survival of the fittest, uh, you're dead, dude. I mean, um, those do not make for, uh, so love has been seen as kind of a weakness. But what's happening is, is that if you're going to create empowered organizations that are innovative, love and care have got to permeate the organizations. If we're going to create fully human corporations, then care and love will be at the essence of what those businesses are about. And frankly, women are just more comfortable with it. And so as women create, oh, 
40% of all privately held businesses now are owned by women, and 70% of new entrepreneurial startups are being done by women. It's astounding. They not, they're not yet. The, corporate, uh, the, the Fortune 500 does not have women. They're only like 5% of the CEOs in the Fortune 500 are women. But I have no doubt that that will change over time as well. So we need this new type of leader who's got a higher degree of emotional intelligence, who's more comfortable with... Uh, care and love and relationships and communication in the workplace because that's what creates the type of community that we need for our organizations to be fully human. And as we transform our organizations, which is what our book is, of course, dedicated to doing, we will see the reputation of business completely turn around. We will go from a 19% approval rating to an 81% approval rating. And as that happens, we will let up on the massive loss of economic freedom that we're seeing because we don't trust businesses because corporations are a bunch of sociopaths. We've got to control with the government and as a result our prosperity declines. Fourth tenet of conscious capitalism and then I will be done up here uh, for my talk is we have to create cultures that liberate human beings to be creative, that are not managed by fear, that allow humans to self-actualize themselves and reach their highest potentials in life. So I've already talked about love. We have to create organizations that have trust, that have empowerment, that have authenticity, that have uh, 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 innovation and, and collaboration. These are some of the traits that in our research shows that the conscious businesses have an abundance. Um, so. I will have to tell you that I've sort of given up on my own generation. This is always disappointing when I tell people this. But I have found in a lot of the ways that we wrote the book, not for baby boomers uh, in their 50s and 60s who are somewhat ideologically locked in and not really open now to new ideas. It's the millennial generation. The millennial generation is an amazing generation. I'm talking about the people born between about 1980 and the year 2000 because they are, um, have the potential to be a heroic generation. And so we've written this book in a way to give the millennials permission to create conscious businesses. No, you're not a fool for doing this. You're not a sucker. That In fact, you're creating businesses that will be more competitively resilient and more competitively successful. And it will be the millennials that will create the conscious businesses that we're going to transform our world in the 21st century. There are a number of conscious businesses that are out there that we talk about, companies like, uh, like Google, like uh, Southwest Airlines, like Amazon.com, Costco, uh, Bright Horizons, Panera Bread, the Container Store, um, UPS, POSCO in South Korea, the Tata Group in India. We name a bunch of them. And by the way, consciousness is on a continuum. We don't hold any of these companies up, including Whole Foods is perfect. Perfection is, uh, is humans, we're flawed, and, we, and, and businesses are never going to be perfect, and it's easy for people to take shots at businesses and point out the things that Whole Foods does wrong or they don't like about Amazon or Southwest, et cetera, et cetera. But you can do the same thing about doctors or lawyers or politicians or journalists or business school professors. Uh, it's just the way it is. So um, I'd like to end on that challenge to the millennial group, because that's really who we're targeting here. You will create the businesses that will transform our world. My generation solved some problems that my parents' generation couldn't solve, but we left 
we have left a pretty big mess. And uh, sorry about that. I've done what I could. <laughs> but that's what we count on the young. The young doesn't yet know what it can't do. It doesn't yet know what it can't do. And that allows it to innovate in ways that the people who think they already know are no longer able to see. So the challenge to the millennials that I'll give you is you can create the conscious businesses that can help heal a lot of the problems that are in America. In fact, it's your job to do so. Because honestly, my generation couldn't figure out how to do it. So we've left it to you. But we trust you. You're very smart. You're very creative. You have lots of skill sets. And your consciousness is much higher than my generation was at the same age. So maybe I'll leave, like, leave it there, and now we'll get into our conversation. Thank you very much. John, thank you for that. Uh, really uh, fascinating remarks. And uh, uh, before I, I begin with a um, number of questions that I have for you, I just want to uh, reinforce and applaud the point you made a few minutes ago about women. So this is uh, a topic that, in fact, the Graduate School of Management is very committed to. In fact, we do a, an annual census in California of women in business leadership roles. And uh, sadly, we find that only about 9.8% of all executive suite positions are, are, are held by women. So it's, it's, it's a disappointingly low percentage. We're, we're trying to provide role models in our school for the women who are in our programs, and one way we do this is we actually have the highest proportion of female faculty of any top 100 business school in the world. 43% of our faculty are women. So we think we're, 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 we're hoping that that will provide some role models to to uh, train those, those women leaders that you mentioned? Well, because women have a higher degree of emotional intelligence, they're not always willing to make the, the uh, uh, complete sacrifice for work and career that oftentimes executives have to do to get to the top of a Fortune 500 company. Right. That, to me, shows wisdom. Uh, exactly. But the solution is women will create the next generation of Fortune 500 companies, so they'll get right. their... Uh, in, a, in a more intelligent way. Yeah, great. So um, let's go back to some of the uh, anecdotes in, in the book, and there are many, many fascinating ones, but uh, I, want, I want to take us back to 1978 in, in Austin, Texas. So at that time, uh, you and your then-girlfriend, which I don't know if that's your wife now or not. No, she dumped me. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Just didn't want to say anything inappropriate there, so. Your then-girlfriend started a, a, a food store called Safer Way. And uh, tell us a little bit more about that experience of starting the company. You said a minute ago, I'll paraphrase here, uh, a lot of young people and entrepreneurs don't know what's impossible. So was, was that your experience at the time, and what was it like to start that company? Well, of course, I, I, my background is... Um, I went to two universities. I took a, I have 120 hours of electives. <laughs> when I was 19 years old, no, seriously, I, I, I'll say this as a joke. When I was 19 years old, I was reading, um, I was studying philosophy at the University of Texas, and I was reading John Paul Sartre's book, Being in Nothingness, a book I honestly cannot recommend anyone read. <laughs> and I got so disgusted with it, I threw it down, and I said, I'm never going to read the rest of my life a book I don't want to read. 
And then I thought about that, and the next day I said, you know what, I'm never even going to take a course ever again I don't want to take. And then it was like, I'm never even going to do anything in the rest of my life I don't want to do. <laughs> and so that began this process of really following my heart, which led me to start Whole Foods Market. And uh, it's been actually, I, I often tell young people that that's my single biggest piece of advice is find the things you have great passion for and do those things. You'll be in line probably with your own inner higher purpose, and it will lead you on a grand life adventure. So what was it like? I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, uh, my, I had no business background, and I, I hadn't taken any business classes. So what I did, though, is I was a fanatical reader, so I read, literally, I read hundreds of business books. And, uh, and also my father was an accounting professor at uh, Rice University, and then he went into business, became a CEO of a, comp- a public company, and so he became my mentor. Oftentimes advised young entrepreneurs to find a good coach or a good mentor because he saved me from wrecking the company. I know I would have wrecked Whole Foods. I tried to. And he saved us uh, numerous times from making utterly idiotic decisions. Uh, so I look back on that time romantically because I am a romantic, and uh, I was young. So if I could look back on it and uh, young and you're... It's much better. I was telling this guy recently... Uh, he couldn't believe me, but I, I sincerely meant he was 25 years old, and I said, you know what, I would trade everything I have, all my wealth, all my success. You can be the CEO of Whole Foods Market, but I get to be 25 years old again. <laughs> and he said, you do that? And I said, in a heartbeat, because it's all about the journey. It's all about the creating of it, not the having created it. What's fun is the adventure of it. So it was a grand adventure. Steve, it was honestly a grand adventure. It was building a business is the funnest thing I've ever done. And those are, there are entrepreneurs out there who know what I'm saying is true. It's hard, but it's so rewarding. It's so exciting. You learn so many things. You meet such interesting people. And it's not, it's not easy, and you, you have some failures, but you learn from your mistakes. So I hardly recommend it. So one of the adventures that you actually describe in the book um, is the Austin flood in 1981. And I found that really fascinating. And um, can you share with the crowd, for those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but share with them basically what happened. And then, then how did your community and how did your customers react? And, and why did they have, why, what drove them to do what they did with Whole Foods? Well, the story is, is that uh, Safer Way was the first store we had. And uh, uh, we had that for two years, managed to lose half our money. We had $45,000. We lost $23,000 the first year. And the second year, we made $5,000. We started to figure out the business. And so as soon as I figured it out, I thought, man, our store's too little. We need a bigger store. And it was a really tough sell to our board because we managed to lose half their money, right? <laughs> uh, but we did better the second year, and we found another store to merge with. And, and together, the stores merged, and we relocated to a bigger store and changed the name to Whole Foods Market because they didn't want to be called Safer Way, and we didn't want to be called what they were, their name, Clarksville Natural Grocery. So that first store was a, uh, the first big store named Whole Foods Market was very successful. It became the highest volume natural food store in the United States within one year of opening. Mm. It was a huge success. And it made people say, how long did it take you to make money in that first store? And I said, till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the first day. <laughs> the store was packed. And so we had this tiger by the tail, and it just kept going up and up and up. And I have 
numerous stories I could regale you with if we had time about what happened in that first year. But what the most important story in relationship to what you asked is eight months after we'd opened that store, Austin had the worst flood it had experienced in over 100 years. We had eight feet of water in our store. The creek that we were nearby overflowed its banks, and we just were, I mean, our, our produce cases were tumped over, and, and everything was wrecked in the store. We didn't have flood insurance because you get that from the government, and we didn't, and we didn't have that. And so we were bankrupt. And we showed up the next day to start cleaning up the mess, and the most amazing thing happened. Uh, we had dozens of customers show up who helped us clean up the store. And I, and I asked him, why are you here? And they said, what do you mean, why are we here? We love Whole Foods Market. We're not going to let you die. We're going to get the store reopened again. So st- stop moping and start mopping, <laughs> which is what we did. And then we found out we, their suppliers would give us new inventory right, on credit, even though we couldn't even pay them for the last inventory. And our bank loaned us more money on, on my signature, which was, I assure you, worthless. <laughs> so bad I was thinking about changing my name as a matter of fact and we had our uh, investors kick in more money and, and our team members worked for free because we couldn't make a payroll so for the next 30 days they just worked alongside of us and we paid them back when we got <clears throat> reopened again but there's no assurance that we would so basically that's when I learned about stakeholders back in 1981 before I'd read any books about stakeholder theory um, because the stakeholders loved us and they didn't let us die. And that changed my, I was an awakening for me, which I identify in the book. It was an awakening because I'm only awoke to the reality of stakeholders. But it's the first time I really saw love uh, work in the, these people loved us. And they loved us because we were the kind of business we were. We were ethical business. We, were, we, were, we, were, we loved them. We were creating value for them. And the flood actually was horrible when we went through it. But in retrospect, it was, I'm so glad it happened. Because it, it really tied us together as a, as a team and helped us see that you're just fortunate to be alive. I mean, my girlfriend at the time, she hadn't dumped me yet, uh, she swam out of the store that night. She closed it down, and she literally swam out the front door and was lucky to live. She almost got trapped in the back room where she would have drowned. So, um, yeah, that changed everything, and uh, uh, the business was not the same as a result of that flood. Well, that's a powerful story. and. I was struck by your, your comment earlier in your remarks that um, much of your attention is focused on how your team members are treated and managing them appropriately and motivating them and developing them and so on and with the assumption that they are then going to take care of your, your customers. And that for me, that resonated a lot because that's what, what, what I try to do in my job. I try to ensure that we've got great faculty that ensure a great student experience. So it's really a, a student-centric approach through faculty excellence. You try to make your faculty happy, right? Right. Okay. Right. And I, I wanted you to say that for the record for the faculty. <laughs> oh, they know that. They, they know that. <laughs> but but it, but but this, the logic is the same that um, you're managing your team members in a way that really ensures that they're creating a customer experience that binds the customers to the store in a way that they come and help you clean up after a flood. You know, oftentimes people thought they want to focus, because I think the way the analytical intelligence works, they focus on the conflicts between the stakeholders. They see that if somebody is gaining, someone else must be losing. But I think a better way to think about it is, is that they're all interdependent. And your job is to think about ways where 
they can all at the same time be winning and flourishing. And there are strategies that don't have those trade-offs and those conflicts involved in it. And those are the strategies that the successful conscious business implements that allows their business to really prosper. And yes, I actually think the principles that we outline in the book are applicable to mm-hmm. business schools. They're applicable to uh, nonprofit organizations. They're applicable to government. Hospitals. The, the principles are really universal. Right. Right. So, John, my I'm trained as an organizational psychologist. So, if you if you'd permit me to ask a little bit more about your background, and I'm I'm curious about what were some events or experiences in your early years that you think laid the foundation for the kind of values that, that you've brought to, to Whole Foods. Can you shed light on experiences, people who influenced you? You mentioned your father a little yeah. bit earlier. But what, what, what created these values that you have? I mean, I think people develop their character. Partly that's formed by their parents and their friends and other influential people. And part of it's self-created based on your own quest for higher virtue. I'm, I'm a great, I talk about it in the book that, that probably the most important thing we can do to develop ourselves as human beings is to consciously work to internalize the higher virtues, the higher virtues of love and generosity and kindness and, and forgiveness um, and uh, uh, courage, integrity, these things do not come automatically. You have to work at them. And you have to hold yourself to a high degree of accountability and you'll fall short. And you've got to, you've got to continue to, to work at becoming a better person. So I think part of it's done by your background and your experiences. And part of it is your own determination to basically learn and grow and evolve. I mean, it's your own spiritual, uh, internal uh, motivations that lead us to become better human beings. And I think... Your parents can only take you so far, and then the rest is kind of up to you. Now, I did have some pivotal experiences when I was young that changed me. Uh, although I don't think my biography is particularly interesting. Uh, and, you know, I read biographies, and I'm always amazed at all these interesting experiences. I, I was just, I kind of grew up in America during the 50s and 60s. I was like a character in the Leave It the Beaver uh, in suburban America, and seemed like, you know, a nuclear family and two siblings, and it was... It's, it was very, uh, in a lot of ways, a very typical middle-class American upbringing. My father was a college professor, so my mother was a, was a homemaker. Um, well, I played basketball in high school, and uh, I was really short. I, and I was, even back then, I have to admit, I was a bit of a smart ass, and uh, I, I did not get along with my coach. And after my junior year, I got cut from the team. I was very angry about it. I just thought it was unjust. I knew I was a better player. I just thought he cut me because the coach didn't like me. So what changed my life was I didn't accept that. Instead, I transferred to another school and played. And uh, the reason that changed me was I realized, you know what? If you get Delta, something bad happens, you don't have to be a victim of it. You don't have to just feel sorry for yourself. You can do something about it. And you're, the setbacks, we all have setbacks. We all have failures in life. And, and I just become more, when I fail, it just, I, I try to ask, what is it that I'm trying to learn here? And then I find ways to go back and be successful, despite the setback. I don't let that setback knock me down. And it knocks me down, but I don't let it knock me out. Mm-hmm. And 
I went back, and I'd like to say in this romantic story, I went back and beat my former team. In fact, we lost two close games by one point and two points. And it, it, I'll tell you that I still occasionally replay those uh, games in my mind, even at, you know, 40 years later. And we do win in my dreams. Uh, <laughs> but that was definitely a pivotal event for me. And also, my parents uh, were not only allowed me to do that, but they supported me because they actually took temporary housing that would let me go to that other school. So that was a very supportive thing my parents did. When you're 17 years old, you don't appreciate that. But as I got older, I realized, my God, my parents actually moved just so I could play basketball. How did they love me and how much they cared for me? Uh, I I found that to be uh, uh, remarkable. So one of the things that I think many of us find uh, deeply troubling about business these days is is the extraordinary discrepancy between the pay of the very highest executives and folks who are in other positions in, in these companies. And um, you've taken a very unique approach to how you're handling your own pay. Would you like to say a little bit about that? you talking about just my own pay personally or just the pay at the uh, company in general? Your own pay personally. Well, um, remember I said I was following my heart, and I, do, I follow my own inner guidance. And uh, at the end of 2006, I got very clear messages and, and my own spiritual practices that indicated to me that I had, had made, I'd made enough money in life that I didn't need to take any more compensation from Whole Foods. So I just stopped taking a salary, I stopped taking bonuses, and all my stock options are, dedi- are donated to the foundations of the company, which is not something I recommend anybody else do. It was just the right thing for me personally, so that's why I did that. Mm-hmm. In terms of, I do agree with you that, uh, and to me it was walking the talk. I do believe in servant leadership, and this, you know, since I've been, haven't taken any money in seven years, I have just been serving the company and helping it to flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps give more authenticity when I talk about servant leadership, so it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's been very... Uh, uh, it's consistent with my values. Mm-hmm. Now, Whole Foods also has a salary cap, uh, mm-hmm. and we have transparency on wages so people can find out what other people make. I am worried that part of what undermines the legitimacy of business in our society are these huge salary gaps. Remember how I said mm-hmm. a lot of leaders are attracted because of power and money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people struggle to get up the corporate hierarchy, and they may not get there until they're in their late 50s or early 60s, and then their attitude is, I may only be the CEO for seven years. I want to make as much money as I can. Mm. And that's what they proceed to do. Mm. And it, it undermines the morale in that organization. Uh, at Whole Foods, I think it's important that you pay attention to the external equity, what the market pays. You can't, you can't have your people radically underpaid or else your competitors will hire them away. But at the same time, you have to pay attention to internal equity. What's the relative pay mm-hmm. that people are making compared to everyone else? And so Whole Foods pays attention to both of them. Right. And uh, so we do have a salary cap. It's, it still allows our highest paid people at Whole Foods still make $800,000 a year. So they're not exactly paupers. Uh, but 800000 is not $80 million. So mm. these things are relative. Mm. So when, when I introduced you, I went through an impressive list of all the awards that I didn't know I'd won all those awards, so thank you. (laughs) That's what my briefing said, so it must be true. 
So, but let's flip that around a little bit, and, and you've been very candid, actually, in your remarks. Can you say a little bit more about bad decisions you made, and what, you know, maybe, what would you consider, say, the worst decision you made? For Never should have let my first girlfriend get away from me. Um, <laughs> no, that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> no, I've been happily married for 21 years, so it's lucky for me she, uh, she ran off with that guy in the ice cream parlor. Um, <laughs> no, um... You know, probably, I made a lot of bad decisions. The truth of the matter is, is that uh, one of the ways that you learn in life is through your bad decisions. Your bad decisions are the best opportunity you ever have to learn. If you only make good decisions all the time, then you, you, you're, you're probably playing it too safe. You're, too, you're not taking enough risk because you're not knowing what your, your limits are. You're not, you're not pressing yourself to where... Uh, you find out what you can and cannot do. And part of that is by making bad decisions. Uh, so I've made a bunch of them. I think the worst decision I ever made, and I learned a valuable lesson from it, was back in 1997, uh, Whole Foods Market acquired a vitamin company called Amrion based in, in Boulder, Colorado. And we did it because this was a, an important category for us. The whole supplements business is a good category for Whole Foods. And these guys, we didn't see them as competitors. They were a mail-order company, and they were a manufacturer. So I thought, we could get these guys' expertise in the company, and we could also get, you know, we could be, they could do our private label, and, 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 and I just saw all the synergies between the potential businesses. But the mistake I made was, A, we overpaid, because that was at the peak of these valuations for vitamin companies. So we were absolutely at the peak, and then a big sell-off occurred right after that big decline in the industry. But also, um, it, we've acquired lots of retail companies, and if something goes wrong, we've got the expertise to fix it. But as soon as we bought this company, the guy that had built the company took the money and retired. And when we started running into problems, we didn't have anybody at Whole Foods we could send in to fix it. Mm. So we bought that business for $140 million, and four years later, we sold it for $30 million. <laughs> so I was a $110 million mistake. Uh, so I learned a very valuable lesson there, uh, which I could have learned it cheaper. But don't buy businesses that you don't really know what the heck you're doing because you can't solve the problems that they might come with. So we stuck to our knitting as a result. And anytime we've been tempted to buy a company that's uh, a little bit outside of our realm of expertise, mm -hmm. I always remember Amrion and, and pretty much veto it. John, it's really been fascinating to hear about your principles and conscious capitalism, and, and I've been inspired and I've learned a lot tonight from, from, from what you're doing and, and your approach to business, and, and I just want to thank you for, for taking that perspective and having those values that allow us then to have this kind of dialogue that we've had tonight to try to really show a, a, a more creative, conscious thoughtful way of, of managing business. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.